Well, hello. This is my Mizzou voice. I, uh, I have a confession to make. I always thought, M-I-Z. I always thought that was really lame. Like, congrats, you can spell your name. Until, until I heard it at Faroe. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. So my voice just has to survive for like 40 minutes, and then I'm going to go do it again. I'm going to yell at a bunch of college students at a basketball game, which is it's odd. I'm at an age where I'm like, these people are students, and I'm yelling, okay, it's fine. I just come to accept it. It's a very Mizzou weekend to you, too. Well, my name is Craig. I'm thrilled you're with us this morning. This morning, we're going to be continuing to talk about what started last week. And it's really important. Last week laid a foundation for what we're going to be talking about today. We'll, we'll dip into it a little bit. But if you don't have last week, t- today feels heavier. Because here's what happens. Here's what, life gets ugly. Like U-G-L-Y. Life gets ugly when people question what we believe we need. Relationships get messy. Feelings get hurt. Things break when people question what we believe we need. It's very difficult for us to see that in our own lives. It's often easier to see it in other people's lives, which is what we're going to do in a second. Think about the parent of adult children. And those adult children struggle with addiction. It's a terrible thing to walk through. I had to walk with many people whose adult children struggle with addiction. Typically, in those relationships, there is one parent who, sadly, through great motivations, becomes an enabler. They see their child struggling with addiction, they keep giving money. They see their child struggling and they don't, they protect them from the consequences of some of their decisions. And if you were to sit down with that parent and if you were to say, hey, what are you doing? Why don't you just make a break here? Well, no. If I did that, I would, have, I would upset my child and they wouldn't like me. And if you were to say, well, why do you need their approval? you would learn what it means when we say life gets ugly when people question what we feel we need. If you were to say to that parent, you don't need your adult child's approval, that would be like the equivalent of trying to take a tasty treat away from a puppy. It just gets ugly. It doesn't go well. I've had to learn this the hard way. I had a good friend of mine. He was a consultant uh, he was what's called an A-class consultant. I didn't know any of this about consulting. But he went to like a really good school. And then he got into like this top tier of consulting. And then all of a sudden he just lost his job. I was walking with him. And you know, I knew everything. And so I was like, well, dude, I feel like there's consulting jobs everywhere. Why don't you just get a job anywhere? And he's like, dude... I went to Georgetown. I got into this A-class consulting firm. If I get a job outside of that, that could upset the rest of my career forever. When we question what people need, life gets ugly. What about those of us in here who have jobs? We work really hard at our jobs. Our jobs are fine, but it's stressful. So we come home from our jobs and we just want to play video games. 
It's a way we unwind. It's a way we relax. We blow up zombies. And so we're sitting there playing a video game, unwinding from work, and your romantic partner, because let's be honest, this is not just a guy thing anymore. Don't be sexist. You're playing video games, and your partner comes up and says, hey, do you really need to be doing that? Why can't you just hang out with me? How come I can't help you unwind? Aren't I enough? When people question what we need, relationships get ugly, feelings get hurt. What about young parents out there? I don't, not every young parent might feel this, but if you've had children who've gotten older, you will know that our kids are not always fun to be around. Sometimes we just need a break. And so, you know, for the 10th time, you're tired of being a referee in a WWE showdown. I don't know why I have to do this. I need, I need to get out of here. I need a break. I need to take a walk. I need to excuse myself. It may not even be somebody else that's questioning our needs. The questions may come from within. Do you really need that? What kind of a parent doesn't want to be around their kids? Me oh my, the therapy for what you're doing. You're going to pay a lot for this later. Your kids are going to be so messed up because you weren't there. When we question needs, things get messy. And John, the writer, the gospel writer, Jesus' biographer, understands this. That when our needs get questioned, we can feel like we're going to war. When what we look to for safety and security, when someone's like, ah, I don't know if you need that, we can feel like we're being attacked. And so John is trying to show us, again, in somebody else. He's like, hey, let's, let's see what this looks like when the religious leaders, when Jesus says, hey, what you think you need may not be serving you the way you, you want it to serve you. Are you willing to leave it and try something new? They respond with war. They respond literally with violence. They pick up stones to throw at Jesus. Why? Because when the things we're looking to, the things that provide us safety and security, when the insecurity of those things gets pointed out, we feel fear. We feel insecure. And when someone threatens our insecurity, we can lash out. We go to war. There's many different ways we can go to war. We can deflect. Let's just talk about something else. We can explain. No, 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 no. Here's why I need this. You don't get it. We can excuse. Blame. And we can blame a whole host of people. People, God. Withdraw. And if we withdraw a lot, that can lead to isolation. And then we can act out. We can turn to other coping mechanisms that may not serve us. When our security feels threatened, we go to war. And in our passage, Jesus is warning us about the things we find our security in. He's saying, hey, these aren't as secure as you think they are. What if you were to come to me? I can offer you real security. And if we doubt that second half of that sentence, come to me, I'll offer you real security, we go to war with Jesus. 
Our passage this morning, it's really important that we start to build trust in the second part of that statement. Come to me, I have safety, I have security. This conversation about security is really a conversation about glory. If we think about glory, we tend to think of it as like, oh, that person wants glory. They want all the attention. They want the fame. That's not really a biblical concept of glory. The Bible, when it talks about glory, God's glory, how we seek glory, it's not like, hey, here I am. How great am I? That's not what it's talking about. The word for glory, the Hebrew word is kavod, and it means weight. God's glory is the weight of his relational presence with us. The Old Testament talks about the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What does that mean? God came and dwelled in the temple. John the Gospel writer opens this biography of Jesus by saying the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. What's that glory? It's the relational weight of his presence. That he's with us. That he's for us. That he's on our side and he's coming after us. He's offering us real safety and security. In order to do that, we have to be frustrated with our current situation. We have to get tired enough of like, this isn't working. What I thought this was offering me, it just isn't working. There's a part of your brain, it's right here. That until you truly get fed up with your situation, you're not going to leave it. You're not going to walk away from it. And Jesus is, he's not threatening. He's warning. He's saying, hey, what you're building your house on, it can't support it. But I'm going to offer you something that can. And that creates war within us. I know you've been in church a long time. I know you're a great person. You love Jesus. But you sometimes live like you're at war with God. When our security feels threatened, we go after him. And this morning, the passage we're going to look at is an invitation to see where that war leads and ask, is there another way? What would it look like to hear Jesus' warnings and not respond with our own warring I don't know if my Mizzou voice made that clear. If you hear Jesus' warnings and we say, I don't have to go to war with you. What if there's something else? What would that look like? Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to be reading verse 31 all the way to the end of the chapter. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, "Uh, We're Abraham's descendants, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say, we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants. 
Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence. He's seen in the Father's presence. And you're doing what you've heard from your father. Abraham's our father, he answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. What a weird thing to say to people trying to kill you. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Um, are we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? That's right, right? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. But I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died. So did the prophets. But you say, whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. So did the prophets. Who do you think you are? If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I don't know him, I'd be a liar, like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not 50 years old, they said to him. Yet you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help. God, in a world that's always offering constructive criticism, help us to hear Help us to hear when you say what we're doing isn't working. Help us to hear the love in that. Help us to feel the weight of glory. Lord, our hearts need something to behold. God, I pray that you'd give us something big enough. I pray you'd give us you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. I have always, uh, one of the reasons I struggle, there's two things I really struggle with when it comes to preaching the biographies of Jesus. 
One of them is like violence in the Bible. We're not going to talk about it today, but like there's a lot of parables where it's like, and they, you know, the parable ends with someone saying, and they took him outside the city gates and they chopped him to pieces. I'm like, uh, I don't know what to do with that. The other one are passages like this. So I just want to say before we get into this passage, passages like this have been misread and misinterpreted and have been used by Protestant scholars and sadly evangelical scholars, we're both of those things, uh, to fuel anti-Semitism. And I, I just want you to hear me say as clearly and as loudly as I can, that is not what's happening in these passages. When people read these and are like, see, Jesus hated Jews and so do we, that is evil. It is from the devil. And I mean that quite literally. And Protestantism and both American evangelicalism has, have had a funny history with anti-Semitism and we must reject that as well. And I just want to say, even like halfway through like preparing this week, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I just had to be crystal clear with what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. He is having an intense debate with the religious leaders of his day. And it is not as though Jesus is doing comparative religious studies. He's not saying, hey, guys, your religion broken. I'm here to offer you a new one called Christianity. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is Jewish, and he's speaking to Jewish scholars about the Hebrew Bible. This is an intra-religious debate. All right? We, I, have a deep respect for our Jewish neighbors and for Jewish scholars. We read them seriously, and we, we dive into what they're saying. And to our shame, too many American Christians have participated in anti-Semitism. And you're like, why are we talking about this? Just because no one is, and we need to just ring the bell. It's wrong. So that's not what this passage is about. But what is this passage about? This passage is a tale of two glories. This passage is talking about finding the weight of God's presence either in our obedience, either in our accomplishments, in the things we've created, or it's finding the weight of God's pleasure, the weight of his relational presence in God himself. The weight, the tale of two glories. Jesus, throughout John's gospel, has clearly and again and again stated what he is offering us. He is offering us God's pleasure. What is Jesus offering us? He is offering us the delight of God. He is saying, God likes you. He's looking for you to bless you. He's looking for you to be in relationship with you. He's looking for you to know you. The relationship that Jesus has with the Father. He now says, I offer that to you. And we are people who so desperately need it. Why? Because we're relational beings. We're relational. We're made for relationship. And when we don't go into relationship, we experience a failure to thrive. Think about all the bad things that happen through isolation. Nobody in here is like, you know what was super cool? April 2020. I just miss lockdown. Just, can we get back to that? I mean, I just want to be alone. Some of us, we don't want to live there. 
We don't, it's not good for people to be alone. We're relational people. And what Jesus offers us, he's trying to point out the insecurities of what we build our life on. And he's trying to say, hey, there's something more secure than that. God's joy and his delight in you. And that's the language he uses later in this passage about glory. But it needs to be read through the earlier part of the book. In John chapter 1, listen to this. Starting in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You hear the presence there? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Presence, lived with us. And we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Doesn't do it. The idea that maybe beheld. We have received. We have experienced. We've let it wash over us. His glory. What is that? It's the weight of the presence of God that he's here. He's not looking for you to punish you. He's looking for you to bless you. Our problem is we don't want to participate. Human beings are complex and complicated people. We're kind of like an orchestra. You've got the brass. You've got the percussion. You've got the strings. You've got the wind. And when they're all playing together, it sounds wonderful. But when one little section is like, you know what? We're doing our own thing tonight. We're just going to, you know, we're going to literally march to the beat of our own drum. It just sounds like chaos. We are made up of complex parts. Part of us loves mom and dad. And you cannot make fun of my mom. Part of us blames mom and dad. What the heck were you doing? What did, you, did, you, did you even try to parent us? Were you just like kind of throwing things together? And both of those parts of us are true. Parts of us desire deeply to hear from God. Parts of us feel like throwing in the towel. And the problem is, all these parts of us feel like a war, and they're not working together. And so when Jesus warns us, he says, hey, what you're building your life on, it's not sustainable. The parts of us that don't feel like they have peace with God can go to war. And again, what does that look like? Deflecting, explaining, excusing, blaming. No one in here has ever blamed God. I mean, I haven't, right? I mean, I've never, never done that. Withdrawing, isolating, and then even acting out. So Jesus comes to the religious leaders and he says, hey, what you're building your life on, it, it's not going to sustain you. It can't. He says this, you, um, he says, if you hold to my teaching in verse 31, you're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they start to go to war with that. Verse 33, this is how the religious leaders go to war. They, they start by denying reality. Like, we've never been enslaved. Listen again to verse 33. It says this, uh, we're Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we'll be set free? They're at a festival celebrating their freedom from slavery in Egypt. It's a denial of reality. Like, we've never been slaves. When all behind them, you can imagine, are tents everywhere, that they would live in tents during this festival, to say, hey, when we left Egypt, we lived in tents in the wilderness. And Jesus says, hey, what you're building your life on will enslave you. It, it promises security, but it, it doesn't land there. And they're like, how dare you say we're slaves? You hear the war? 
These are not, it, you'd be, if you read this once quickly, you might be okay thinking, well, these are just spiritually curious people, right? They're having a lively debate. That's not what's happening here. These are people who are trying to suppress the truth. Jesus has again and again presented, hey, I am Israel's Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I've come. I'm here. And they're like, no, 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 no. Don't listen. We can see it as it goes on. They accuse Jesus of being an illegitimate child in verse 41, which is ironic. They're, they're leaning into his history. Where's dad, Jesus? They slander Jesus. This is all war. They're, acu- they're so accustomed to lying, they don't even know when they're lying. They falsely accuse Jesus, and then they participate in racist name-calling in verse 48. Listen to it again, because it's a really bizarre thing to say. The Jews answer, uh, aren't we right? Isn't it right to say that you're a, a Samaritan and demon-possessed? That's right, right? This is not spiritually curious people seeking for the truth. They're trying to get the mob on their side. Remember, this is happening in public, and there's racial tension between Jews and Samaritans. After the exile, a bunch of Jews left Jerusalem, started a new community, and they intermarried. And the Jews who stayed looked at them with disgust. They're accusing Jesus of that. They're participating in racism, and then they're demonizing. Aren't you also demon-possessed? Right? Like, isn't that like, that is not a curious group of folks. Right? That's right, right? What does it mean to demonize someone? When we hear that a lot, right? Like, oh, every, you know, politics are so demonizing. What does it mean to demonize? Demons are irredeemable. There's no salvation for demons. When we demonize someone... We are putting them in a category that says irredeemable. Bad. We've labeled it. We got the t-shirt. Kick them out. Demonizing is fruit of idolizing. When we idolize something and then it is threatened, we demonize. If you look at Pew Research and surveys of Republicans and Democrats... Republicans believe that Democrats are liars and wicked people who are out to destroy this country. And Democrats believe that Republicans are liars and wicked people out to destroy this country. Demonizing. There's no conversation. We're not curious people, open to persuasion. We're not listening to each other. We are demonizing. That's what they're doing to him. How do we just get rid of this guy? How do we just say what we need to say so the crowd reacts? How do we say what we need to say to just silence him? What are we hearing here? Why would they do this? Why do they go to war like this? Well, then they literally go to war in verse 59. At this, after this, they picked up stones to stone him. This is insecurity at its finest. Insecurity. Jesus is offering glory He is saying, you can experience God's relational presence. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father. He's saying, I'm offering that to you. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that highlights insecurity. That highlights insecurity. And instead of saying, yeah, okay God, help me suss this out. We go, hey, 
You're evil. You're the problem. The, the parent, the father who is enabling their addicted child. It's like getting help and just fighting. You can't even recognize when people are coming at you to help you. They're the enemy. You know, this is the equivalent of waiting in a doctor's waiting room. And the patient in front of you was just diagnosed with cancer. And you see it, it comes into the lobby and they're trying to fight the doctor. How dare you say I have cancer? Do you know who I am? I'm going to fight you. And you're just like, I don't know if that's, I don't know if we need to do that. That's what insecurity does. It has to go to war. It has to silence. And we can look at these religious leaders and be like, they're super bad. What a mess. Until we see that's what we do with our insecurities. We deflect, we explain, we excuse, we blame, we isolate, and then we act out. We, I believe, fundamentally believe that God is looking for us to punish us. And so when Jesus says things like he says in here, when he says in verse 34, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Like, see, he's coming after me. But again, what we talked about last week, you have to recognize the difference between warnings and threats. Jesus is not threatening. He is not saying, I'm going to destroy you. He's saying, what you're building your life on, this is where that ends. Do you understand the difference between a threat and a warning? We'll do it again. Again, this is nothing I would say to you. Okay, it's very odd coming out of my mouth, but I just need you to hear me say, I don't talk like this. If you keep drinking and driving, I'm going to kill you. That's a threat. Do you hear the threatening nature of that? This is a warning. If you keep drinking and driving, you're going to die. Hear the difference? One says, these are the natural consequences. What's Jesus warning about? Verse 34, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. What's sin? Sin is that idea of building our identity, finding our security in things other than God. Sin has this idea of, of missing. We miss. What do we miss? Romans tells us this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Right? We use that word glory a lot. What does it mean? All have sinned and don't live with his presence. We're trying to do it on our own. We've all missed. We've all said, God, I got this. You're trying to withhold good from me. I got to go take care of myself. You got to say, no, no, no. I'm moving towards you to help you. I don't want that. You're going to take away what I love. I've got this. Well, if you do that, that leads to slavery. And how do they respond? Well, I'm not a slave. And then listen to what Jesus says. This is so important in verse 35. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. We have to just wait a hot second here, okay? The first century was sexist. I hope that's not a newsflash for you. First century was very sexist. Jesus can climb in and out of sexist societies and just because he doesn't call it out doesn't mean he's not trying to move towards something different. So he's not calling it out here, but again, just read the rest of scripture. You'll find him kicking us off in a different direction. 
how come it doesn't say a son or a daughter have a place a slave doesn't? Well, it's because a son has something nobody else has. You know, well, that's sexist. I know. But if you, if you just hang in there for a second, we can all, all of us, benefit from the sexism. <laughs> Trust me, I'm a straight white male. I know. Here's what he says. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Verse 36, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What's he saying? Sons have authority to release and free people. Sons have a high degree of agency. Sons can do things slaves can't. And that's the offer to men and women. How do I know that? Verse, chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own but his own didn't receive him. That's what we're watching right now. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in the name, he gave the right to be children of God. You get to live in all the rights and privileges of the pater familia. The pater familia was the Roman system where the male governed the house and whatever they said went. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to offer you to be a son in the kingdom of God. Where men and women are free. Where men and women have a special relationship to the Father. And where men and women feel the delight of his glory. That's what Jesus is offering back in John chapter 8. Look with me again when, he, when the whole demon possession thing. He says this. Are you, in verse 53, the are you greater than our father Abraham and by extension us? He died, so do the prophets. Who do you think you are? He says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. What's Jesus talking about there? What does it mean that God glorifies Jesus? In eternity past, God the Son and God the Father lived in a relationship of pure joy and ecstasy. They delighted in each other. They didn't need anything from each other. And the Spirit's there, and they're all delighting in that relationship. And they're saying, oh man, this is oneness. This is wholeness. We're excited to be together. There's joy here. And they say, how do we spread this? Well, let's create people. And so they create people. And they say, hey, this invitation is for you. What we're experiencing here, this thing called glory, you can have. And we had it, and we lost it. And now Jesus says, hey, hey, I'm, I'm not ready to nuke you guys and start over. I want to redeem this. I'm looking for you to bless you, to offer you what was there, that glory, that joy, that relationship, that happy to be together. And even in the face of extreme opposition and, and his enemies coming after him, Jesus is still offering this. Look at this very strange verse, John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. You would love me. You'd delight in this thing we have. Too many of us don't get to experience this kind of delight. It always just feels out of reach. Someone's happy to be with us. Someone's moving toward us. No, no, we can, it's, I have no problem believing in God who's like, hey, behave or I'll crush you. I have no problem believing that. But a God who's constantly looking for me to bless me, I don't, I don't, that's a fairy tale. 
And I probably would have an easier time believing in real fairy tales. But here's how Paul describes what Jesus is saying. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you this morning believe in Jesus, all of you has peace with God. Yeah, that part of the orchestra that is always out of tune, they're always trying to hide from people, that if people really found out who you really were, that part of you has peace with God. Oh, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like you feel like you have to do something to get peace with God. That's why, like, you hear about, like, sometimes you do baptisms at churches, and people are like, this is like the 10th time I got baptized, because I really get it this time. What's happening there? You're watching someone bring different parts of them. Okay, now this part of me got it. But all of us, all of us has peace with God. And the challenge is working to really trust that he's not saying, hey, building your life on something other than me is dangerous. Not because I'm angry, but because what you're building your life on can't hold your life. The approval of your romantic partner, that's too small for you. The status you get from driving around town in a Land Rover, yeah, that's too small for your life. The approval of your children, man, you were made for something bigger. You were made for the delight of the Trinity, that the triune God sees you. He knows all those parts of you that are at war. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want that. I want you to bring that to the party. How do we actually do that? It's really easy to say, right? Like, okay, I'll bring the parts of me that are warring with God to God. Here's what you need to understand. You cannot reason yourself or anyone out of something you weren't reasoned into. I'll say that again because the 2024 election season is upon us. You'll need to remember this. You cannot reason someone out of something they were not reasoned into. I'm scared of God. Well, don't be. He's not scary. God is love. Thanks. Feel better. I think it's really interesting that Jesus says, if I didn't say this, I'd be a liar. If I didn't offer you the relationship I have with the Father, I wouldn't be telling the truth. That's, that's how deeply committed he is to this. And he's willing to sit with us while it takes us time to bring those parts to him. It's not going to get sorted out overnight. You didn't get yourself into this problem overnight. You're not going to get out of it overnight. You have heard me say, if you've been around Compass Church for any length of time, I stand against, I am opposed to, I hate willpower Christianity. What is that? Willpower Christianity is exerting effort in our spiritual lives in order to find a sense of meaning and connection. We'd say it like this. If I hear truth, and then I add to that truth good choices, then I'm going to experience transformation. I reject that wholeheartedly. I think transformation comes when we have identity and belonging. Or if you're into like nerdy circles, uh, this is called voluntarism. That our will is central in following Jesus. I reject that idea of willpower Christianity. We can just like, we can just uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to honor God. But I want to be clear, I'm not against willpower. There are times when we have to try 
and it doesn't feel true, and it doesn't feel real. Our hearts are going this way, and God is that way, and we go, okay. You can see that you know, we all live like this is true instinctively. If you're in a situation with somebody, and there's danger, right? Like someone is like, I'm going to fight somebody. You don't go, okay, let's talk about identity. No, you're like, hey, get out of here. We're getting out of here. Go. That's will. What are the acts of the will that you can participate in? What acts of the will can we participate in? To bring the warring parts of us to Jesus. Every Sunday, we hear three voices. You hear the voice of the preacher. That's me. You hear the voice of the Spirit. Surprise, we believe in the Holy Spirit around here. And then you hear your own voice. So I'm saying, hey, I think Jesus is inviting you to bring those warring parts to Jesus. And the Spirit might go, oh, is that this? Is that this thing that you never told anyone? And your own voice goes, well, hang on. Let's suss this out. And the invitation is to take all these three voices and figure out how we can get the orchestra on the same page. How can we say, hey, here's the ground we're standing on. We have peace with God. What would it look like to bring those warring parts of us into his presence? Look, again, you cannot reason yourself out of something you weren't reasoned into. I, I just have to say this. The story of you starts with your body. You don't have a body, you are a body. In Genesis chapter 2, when God creates man and woman, he first creates their body. He formed the man from the dust of the ground. Your story starts with a body. Then what does he do? He breathes into them the breath of life. You don't have a body by mistake. When we feel fear from God, what can we do? You can't reason yourself out of it. Don't be scared, don't be scared, don't be scared. You can calm. It's very hard to see things accurately when you're scared. Sometimes the fear is real, you need to run. Sometimes we're just stuck in a part of our story and we're reliving it and we don't need to. And so what voice are you going to listen to today? Here's just the invitation this morning and then the band's going to come up. What story are you telling yourself that Jesus might be inviting you to bring to him? Oh, if so-and-so knew such and such about me, it'd be over. That's a story. It's really, it's an opinion. Are you willing to bring that story into God's presence? To say, hey God, I have peace with you. This story I'm telling myself doesn't cultivate peace. I want to just, I want to make you aware of it. I want to bring it into your presence. What habit? 90% of your life is on autopilot. How many of you, after waking up, had to make yourself a note? Okay. Before I leave the house, I have to do this. If I don't write this down, I won't do it. Get dressed. Probably not many of you. Because the habit, you don't even know it. Your just life is autopiloted to get these things done. What habit do you have is not cultivating peace? Maybe when you experience relational tension, you go check out YouTube. You're like, I gotta cash out. I get scared, I go on YouTube. I get scared, I go to social media. That's a habit. What habit can you bring before Jesus and say, this isn't cultivating peace with God? What friendship? 
Not all your friends are working toward good in your life. Not all your friends are cultivating peace with God. What friendship can you bring into God's presence and say, hey, this, this friendship, it's not cultivating peace with you. I need to bring that before you. And then what patterns of isolation? It's really important that you see this from the text. Isolation. I like to be alone. I think, I say I'm introverted and people laugh, but I feel introverted these days. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, why is my language in verse 43 not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. You're like, holy cow, that's harsh. Devil is not a name. It's not like Steve or Karen or Carl. It's a title, and it means the slanderer. The devil is the devil because he is the slanderer. Why were the Pharisees love their father, the devil? They're slandering Jesus. The objective of evil is to divide and conquer. That's the objective of slandering. Hey, I wouldn't tell people at Compass that you do such and such. Why? Well, they will react like such and such. Oh, slander. Divide and conquer. The goal of Jesus is to unite all things under him. Evil divides, Jesus unites. Which of these things, which story, which habit, which friendship, and which pattern of isolation, of withdrawing, can you bring before the Lord today? We're going to take communion in just a moment. And the invitation, I think, this morning is to sit with these three voices, to reflect, hey, God, what do I need to bring into your presence? What part of me is still at war with you? And then when we eat his bread and drink his blood, we have a visible reminder, a representation that the war is over. We have peace with God. Jesus, all these pieces of us feel like a mess. God, we thought we knew what we needed and I don't know. Now it feels tricky. God, I pray that in this moment right now, we wouldn't leave without bringing these things into your presence. Give us the courage to do that. Let us know that you really are for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.